Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. And I said, oh, it's uh, it's nude. And she went, she, <laughs> you know, she smokes a fag, she went... <sighs> It's not new, ducky. It's naked. (laughs) Hello and welcome to The World As It Should Be, a podcast in which we ask our guests to tell us what they would change to help create their perfect world. By listening to what they'd like to change, we'll hear more about who they are, what they do and what inspires them. This podcast is brought to you by the team behind Prima Donna, a uniquely anarchic and joyous festival of everything creative. My name is Shona Abianka and I'm a book publicist working with some of the most thought-provoking authors writing today. I'm Catherine Riley, a writer and director of the festival. We're delighted to be your guides on this podcast adventure. The world as it should be from Prima Donna. We're thrilled to have B Rollup with us today. We very much consider B to be an honorary prima donna. She came to our first festival and played a massive part in making it the amazing weekend it was, and she's continued mucking in ever since. B is a writer, journalist, broadcaster, campaigner, and now events producer for the British Library. She's the mum to four lively children, used to be a showgirl, and was instrumental in creating the world's first memorial sculpture to 18th century feminist Mary Wollstonecraft, which stands in Newington Green, close to where Wollstonecraft lived and worked. So B, let's cut to the chase. You helped institute the most trolled piece of public art this millennium, and we love you for that. Before we get to your three things, we have to talk about those tiny silver boobs. So um... It's more than tiny silver <laughs> boobs, can I just say. We'll that, get to that. that, that you, you, you've got right to the problem there, which is that, you know, on the day of the launch, you know, obviously we were in corona lockdown. Everything had to happen online. And I think one of the big problems, you know, one, we're all crazy in lockdown and this seemed to be some kind of lightning rod. Two is that the image was cropped and manipulated, well, I think unfairly represented. So, you know, it was zoomed in on the on the pubic area, on the breasts, when actually the the artwork, when you encounter it, is very different. It's a very different experience. I just have to tell you that because, you know, I feel like it went around the world and there was nothing we could do. And of course, it was the most trolled artwork on earth. And, you know, and we've been campaigning for, for 10 years, as you know. But the other thing I would say in defense of the memorial sculpture to, um, to the legacy of Mary Wollstonecraft is that, and our artist Maggie Hambling is, is, is very clear on this, it's a sculpture for Wollstonecraft, not of Wollstonecraft. That is not her body. It's, it's, it's a representation of an idea. And um, this also got lost in translation. So lots of people were really upset. Um, but I did think, you know, for the quantity of instant Wollstonecraft fans that suddenly came stampeding along, I did think, you know, we've been here 10 years and that this design has been in the public domain for two years. Um, so perhaps they would have heard of us or helped us or supported us before that. Anyway, Anyway, yeah. Do you know what? The more I, the more I fought for it, the more I love it. Because Wollstonecraft was an iconoclast. She was not about um, promoting herself or putting herself on a pedestal. And I don't think that a traditional uh, Victorian style statue would have done her justice. 
I think she deserved something different, something more transgressive. I agree. And we, we actually had a little prima donna pilgrimage to, to um, New Inter Green. And I can't Oh, speak- did you? Yeah, I, yeah. I love it. I think it's beautiful. I, I was, I, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big when fan you of you. It, it's, quite, it's quite curious, isn't it? You yeah. You're not entirely sure what's going on. And it I, kind I of really works. Yeah. Yeah, with the trees around it and, and the backdrop of the red brick and stuff like that. It just, it's just, it's really beautiful piece of art, apart from anything else. Um, and, but and I, do think, I mean, I do understand that not not everybody's going to love it, and you know, and and I respect people's responses. Um, I mean, some of them were really funny, actually. Some of the trolling online, I, I cannot lie, was actually really funny. <laughs> um, but I, I respect that that people, the, you know, the people that wanted it to be something different or something else. Um, but I would say, you know, do go and see it for yourself because it's not the same as just seeing a cropped image online. I agree, and we can't all like all the same things, can we? Otherwise, yep. we're all listening to Coldplay, and where do we get them? <laughs> Um, can you talk us through your love affair with Mary Wollstonecraft and how? Oh, it- I can. Well, nobody <laughs> oh, really like her. She's the most extraordinary woman from history. So, for people that don't know much about her, Mary Wollstonecraft is the foremother of feminism, but also of, of human rights. You know, she has a very real claim to being one of the early architects of what we now call human rights. Um, and quite astonishingly, she was from a fairly grim background and had to financially support her extended family, uh, was denied an education, to larger self-taught, very chippy, very, very scrappy, uh, and, and a really unusual genius of her time. She actually described herself as the first of a new genus uh, in, in being someone that could support herself by her writing. But um, so, yes, and she's a, a key philosopher of the Enlightenment. And yet, you know, most of us have never heard of her. And she's regularly uh, cited on inspirational quotes on the internet with a picture of her daughter, Mary Shelley, who, you know, is annoyingly way more famous. All right, all right. She wrote the most (laughs) successful novel of all time. But, you know, did she try and change the world? No, she didn't. That's what Wollstonecraft did. And, yeah, I get quite vexed about it. And, you know, so from the get-go, from my early interest in Wollstonecraft and the more I learned and I, you know, wrote a book and, you know, undertook a sort of retracing of a journey, the whole time I was thinking, well, why the hell isn't she more famous? Why haven't loads of, why isn't she just, you know, in the corridors of fame and just there at the edge of people's minds when they think about human rights and when they think about feminism? Um, she just isn't. And it turns out there's a very good reason why. She was actually actively annihilated from history in a really horrible incident following her early death. She died age 38 and her then husband, um, William Godwin, the anarchist philosopher, wrote uh, the first biography of Mary Wollstonecraft and he included all these apparently scandalous details about her life. The fact that she'd tried to take her own life, the fact that she had a child out of wedlock, these kind of things. And it just caused the most immense storm of opprobrium that, that, that you know, it was sustained by women writers as well in a curious echo of the effects that her memorial sculpture had a couple of centuries later. Um, it was, yeah, it was a lot, you know, the, the attack on it was, was very personal and it was very nasty and it was sustained for many years. So she became a figure of embarrassment and disgust so, B, it took 10 years to bring Mary's statue to Newington Green. What was it that caused this delay? I mean, 10 years is a long time. Why did it take so long? Maybe I'm just not very good at it. <laughs> I, honestly, I remember my mates all going, still, what? Haven't you done it yet? You know, and like year after year, I'd be sort of doing, running a 5K or, you know, I did, you know, loads of little events, just thing after thing. People... I suppose quite rightly said, you know, why should we fund a statue when X, Y, Z, you know, insert your own personal gripe here. There was always something more important. 
And what was the breakthrough? What was the thing that finally made it? I mean, we had, you know, I mean, it, maybe not one giant breakthrough. We had, we did a big West End event, um, put on a put on a big West End play about her life, and got brilliant speakers and actors and music, um, and that was a turning point. We got, uh, yeah, we got a lot of interest there, and we had wonderful support from the local press and from local people. Um, so yeah, it was just it, we just plodded on for ages. And is that the play um, that you wrote, B? Yeah, it's called An Amazon Stepped Out, and it's so this, a celebratory this evening about, about... Phenomenal commitment to, like, fundraising, writing the play, doing the runs, doing the... Yeah. <laughs> we, just, we, just, we just kept on plugging on, and, you know, we made lo- friends with lots of other other statue campaigns, and there's there's other campaigns that I absolutely love, you know, the Mary Seacole campaign, the Nurin Ayat Khan Trust, um, the Mary Anning campaign, Virginia Woolf, there's, and, you know, some of them are still going on, Mary Annings is still going on, so please listen all do check out the Mary Anning campaign. So you know there was there was solidarity amongst amongst all of the campaigns. And of course, you know we've all we're all it's all different. But um, and then and then interestingly, you know it was when it's when Colston was was dragged down that suddenly every, everybody cared. And and then I felt actually a little bit almost timid because you know I've been stridently banging on for ten years, going statues are really important. And then you know Black Lives Matter showed you know, really something incredibly important. And I, I didn't want to kind of hitchhike on that because it seemed inappropriate. Um, and now actually I find it absolutely appalling when someone like Robert Jenrick, who's, you know, apparently Secretary of State for Housing, Communities and Local Government. But what does he do? A run around trying to give everyone a hard on for Winston Churchill. <laughs> oh, we must defend our ancient monuments of dusty old men. And Ooh. it makes me embarrassed to have campaigned for statues for 10 years, frankly. But, I don't you think know, I've ever heard but, those words in the same sentence. Oh, <laughs> God, it's just appalling. I mean, hasn't the man got a proper job to do? And he keeps popping up going, you know, looking after our ancient monuments. It's, it's deeply embarrassing and I kind of think oh for god's sake thank god it's over so what's the next campaign well thank you for asking we're I'm also the founder and trustee of the Wollstonecraft Society we're it's a human rights charity all about the educational I mean you know, it's about getting human rights educational materials it, you know that fit the curriculum into schools and into places where you know people might not necessarily know about Wollstonecraft so that's the ongoing legacy work that's that's come out of this campaign as well as the brilliant Maggie Hambling sculpture Fantastic. Whilst you're on those, one quick final question, sorry, on the subject while we're talking about Maggie Hamling and after your um, poetic description of Robert Jenrick, <laughs> um, I, I, can, I, I imagine in my head that you and Maggie Hamling had some pretty phenomenal chats. Is that, is that what happened or were you, were you uh, not lesser <laughs> or more involved in the process of the art? Oh, I did. Oh, no, I wouldn't. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to let this out of the bag, but I don't know the first thing about art. But don't tell anyone that. Right? Tell um, I mean, you know, for me, it was a, it was a, a, a you know a singularly political thing. I you know there was no significant memorial to Wollstonecraft anywhere. Maggie Hambling is an extraordinary artist, and you know you you don't tell her what to do. We we basically handed over. So she she submitted a maquette, and uh, I was chair of the um, of the judging panel. So I wasn't actually a judge, but I was chair. So I had to sort of scrutinise the, the 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 judges' responses and you know and the presentations that were made. And I did say to Maggie, um, she showed us the maquette, you know, the sort of miniature version of what the art form is going to look like. And I said, oh, it's uh, it's nude. And she went, she, <laughs> you know, she smokes a fag. She went. <laughs> 
it's not new, ducky. It's naked. (laughs) (laughs) And she fixed me with her beady blue eyes. And uh, I mean, I won't lie, she's terrifying. But she's actually hit on something. It's not nude, it's naked. It's not a sort of supine, inviting, objectified form in my opinion, uh, it's quite a challenging and defiant naked form. You know, we've all got bodies and this is, I think, a, a really wonderful and powerful representation of the, the defiant human spirit that embodies, you know, the struggle of women's rights and universal human rights. I, I find it really inspiring. That's brilliant. It, it is brilliant. I'm, I have wondered what is the kind of wave or flame that Mary is standing on? Is that symbolic? And I, I don't genuinely don't know what that is. Well, I, I'm sort of a little bit scared of talking about it because I, I think it just makes me sound like a wanker. But the idea is it's like sort of um, it's sort of intermingling female forms, and the idea is that it's is that the, the base on which the small figure stands is the sort of the swelling up of effort. You know, it's an acknowledgement of other women and, and the women that came before us, and okay. that, that's part of the ongoing struggle. <laughs> I love that. That's, that's a possible take, you know. Everybody that sees it gets something different from it. Uh, so um, we're going to move now into your into your three things that you want to change to create the world as it should be. Your first offering for the world as it should be is to insist that workers are allowed one day off a week to volunteer. Can you talk us through yes. that? Yes. Well, so I really enjoyed thinking about the world as it should be. Thank you for allowing me this kind of magic wand. Um, and thinking about workplaces and, you know, this is we're allowed to dream big here aren't we yeah, so absolutely you know I, and I appreciate that not all workplaces and not all businesses can allow their staff to go prancing off and volunteering but I think it would be wonderful if more particularly you know state-funded organizations or big and, and more wealthy organizations allowed their staff time off to volunteer perhaps not a full day a week perhaps just an afternoon but um I think particularly for people who are in a, a precarious part of their of their working life, um, and I'm used to that as a woman that's had quite a few kids and, you know, I've been freelance for a long time. And volunteering, whilst you might think, oh, my God, what's in it for me? I'm working for free. It's, it's, not, just, it's not just worthiness. It's not just about the public good, although that is, that is a strong part of it. You can get so much from it. And I think ju- under lockdown and during corona, We've all seen the importance of community and, and that's what you get from volunteering. And so some of the best things that have happened in my recent life have come about as a direct result of people that I've worked with in, in my volunteering life. So, I mean, the, the, the Wollstonecraft Memorial was one. I met some really extraordinary and brilliant people through that. And it's, it's taken me all around the world. It's just been amazing. But, you know, I'm also working in, um, in a food bank near Euston Station. And that also is, is a really exciting, I'm not saying this just to show off about what a great person I am. It's actually a really selfish thing because it's just, it's just a brilliant way of, of meeting new people and learning new skills. And I'd really recommend it for, for people who are in those sort of slightly um, vulnerable junctures in your life when you're between jobs or um, have out of work for, for, you know, or as a student or, you know, those, those times in life when you're going through changes in what you can do. And that's happening a lot in lockdown. Volunteering is a really good way out of that. I just think it should be encouraged. People should really explore it locally if they can. Yeah. And uh, without contradicting the concept of volunteering, I think it should be paid <laughs> so that so, so, so that, you you know, people that are, need to earn a salary five days a week. And I completely yeah. agree with this. Everything that uh, good has happened in my, I, I hesitate to call it career, <laughs> has come from me being, you know, being able to afford to put some time into something that I don't necessarily get paid for. And that is, that, that it, 
yeah, I completely agree it was a principle. Yeah. Well, that's why it would be great if it was backed by big organisations, you know. I mean, maybe something like that exists. I don't know. But I just I just think about how much I've got from it and how how powerful it is to, to connect to your community locally. And that's something that I think everybody's felt during lockdown. And in this last year, people have realised people that are living on their street and in their block that they never knew of and people have reached out in different ways and it's just kind of wonderful and this this would institute that and and you know make it carry on yeah um in terms of your work your career um can you talk us through mm. some of the highlights and lowlights that are outside of your writing so we obviously but we're mm. both fascinated by your showgirl work <laughs> for which you're funny. in good you're in good company <laughs> with other super feminists gloria steiner was a playboy bunny for example yeah um, uh, what, are there any other kind of bits of your work that you you now draw on in your in your feminism or your activism or your writing that you kind of think I can't believe I did that in, you know <laughs> in my former life I actually love it all I love that I've done so many different jobs and I, I wouldn't have I wouldn't be able to do all of them without having done all of I just think you know being a writer and, and working in creative industries it really helps to have had a you know to come at it from a different route and it's yeah, I feel I'm a bit, I'm a bit um, tongue-tied because it's embarrassing um, talking about your own. Uh, like you just did it, you sort of you know made quote mark sounds when you talked about your career, and and I feel the same way. You know, oh my career. Um, I mean, it's it's sort of a bit of a daft career. I've done loads of different jobs, um, but all of them definitely add up. And I still think about that. I mean, the showgirl was it was one of the best times of my life. I was very young. I was only nineteen, um, but it was a huge learning curve, and and it was tough. It was a really tough job. Weirdly, I still wasn't a feminist then. I didn't properly um, give birth to myself as a feminist (laughs) until I was a mum, you know. But I'm not saying that's the only way to come to it. Everybody comes to it in different ways. And then then since then, there's been loads more movements forwards in my feminism. It never sat still, um, which it shouldn't. But although so, me, there was a there was a time when you were a showgirl and you were asked to take your top off and you didn't and you went true. home. So yeah, that's I remember a bit of that. feminism that shining. So I'd come down from Yorkshire on a on a coach and gone to an audition at Pineapple Studios. Um, I can't remember where the job was, and we worked our asses off. We we they taught us a routine and we did it again and again and again, and they kept like throwing out half of the girls right you know, until it was down to six, and then and then they went, okay, girls, it's a topless job. Get your tips out. And, you know, half of them just peeled the tops down and went, yeah. And, you know, I just had to sort of, you know, snivellingly get on a coach and go back. Did you think about it for a second? I just... <laughs> Shona? What? Uh, I, did, I didn't then. But then when I was a showgirl, my best mate and the, and the woman that mentored me and looked after me, and I'm still mates with her today, my Auntie Debbie, uh, that was her nickname. She was the she was the sort of um, old... She was, well, she was ancient for a showgirl. She was 24. Um <laughs> And she really looked after all the showgirls and, and she was she was a topless dancer. They used to get paid more. And uh, she said, you know, it's, it's a career, career progression. I'm not stupid. You guys are the suckers. So she, she had a really interesting take on it. Um, I don't have any feminist problem whatsoever with toplessness. It, you know, it, it, at the time I, I, I felt that that was a really horrible move in that particular audition. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to. Later on, Debbie and I traveled back. We went to the Moulin Rouge, which she was a Moulin showgirl. Wow. And met today's showgirls. And we were like the ye ancient showgirls of yore, <laughs> meeting these amazing, young, bright, shiny, unoppressed women who were so impressive. And uh, we watched the show and we were like, God, I mean, they still do the can-can, which causes all man- manner of horrendous spinal issues. Um, 
but it was it was it was you know all part of the <laughs> process of enlightenment i just think you know never rule anything out really not quite sure <laughs> if i do it now i don't think anyone would really want to see my tits now but you know <laughs> career progression who knows don't write in <laughs> don't write in but do come to the prima donna festival because you never know what's gonna happen <laughs> well you know we could dust down some sequins next time we get that festival together That's a promise giant feathers right i'm gonna move on to your second um idea for making the world <laughs> as it should be which involves making private schools illegal immediately oh, yes. Can you talk me through? Yes. So, you know, how to make everything better really, really quickly. This seems to me just an absolute shoe in of an idea. Um, don't have private schools. Be like Finland, which, you know, routinely is deemed to have the best education system in the world. And you'll notice that I have a strong love for all things Scandinavian and their amazing success at education is one of them. They don't have private schools. Um, and, you know, I'm going to cite someone who is not known for being a raging socialist, uh, uh, Gove, Mike, Michael Gove, who said that private schools are welfare junkies that should be stripped of their charitable status and forced to pay business rates. I completely agree with him. You know, I mean, it's an outrage that, that something that is an engine for inequality is being funded by the state with, via tax breaks and, and, and charitable status. Yeah. What was your school like? Uh, I went to a number of different schools and, you know, crap ones and good ones. And my my kids, actually, and this is one of the things that opened my eyes to this. I've, when we've lived in London, they've just gone to the local normal school. But for the four years that we were living in India fairly recently, they went to this super fancy, unbelievable, it's one of the poshest schools in the world because um, we were expats. Uh, and they don't speak Hindi. So there they rock up at this place that was like a five-star hotel. We were kind of go, oh my God, can we live here? It's just so <laughs> unbelievably fancy. And it was there that I got a taste of super ambitious, really, really nauseating parents who just want to get every last vestige of advantage for their own kid at any expense. And it made me quite cross, actually come back to London, the kids all go back to normal schools again. And, you know, there was absolutely no distinction. The teaching is every bit as brilliant in state schools. I just think that, you know, you learn so much, even if you don't have three swimming pools and a state-of-the-art theatre, which you probably don't, um, you, you still have extraordinary teachers that are every bit as good as in the private sector. And furthermore, data, there was a report a couple of years back showed that um, kids that have come out of state schools with high grades get better degrees than privately educated kids with the same grades. And I just think, you know, people should, people should think about that. People should be invested in this time more than ever. The year we've just been through that has shown how divided children's access to the future is. Um, the digital divide has got worse. The social divide has, has got much worse. I mean, already Britain is a very peculiar place in its, uh, the divide between private and state educated kids is, the, is among the highest in the developed world. What's wrong with us? And do you think your love of Mary and your admiration for her has affected how you feel? Because obviously she had a, a big interest in education. Yes, I do. I just think she quite rightly places education at the heart of absolutely everything that she does. And if you care about humanity, if you care about, I mean, she has what she calls an ardent affection for the human race. I love that. If you care about um, 
the, the you know society doing well then by necessity you have to care about education it just follows and if you care about education you should care about everybody's not just you know not just your own kids because it's it's a positive sum game if if the rest of society and your community is also well educated and can read and write well then you know you won't be surrounded by idiots i mean it's just it's good for everyone this is why I love Prima Donna Festival and like imagining the world as it should be. And I think, you know, and not only Prima Donna Festival and the world as it should be, but, you know, we're coming through this insane pandemic where, you know, we're all trapped in our houses thinking about the world and about our place in it. And if not now, when? You know, the, the last time that, that society was was shredded apart like this, I mean... I know it's a bit tired to compare Corona to a world war, but everyone else is doing it. So I'm going to chip in too. Um, you know, just after the Second World War, we got the NHS. We got, you know, we got a government that, that made free secondary edu- education mandatory. I think they went far enough with the NHS. And, you know, also the medical establishment resisted that at the time, including the BMA. They didn't want an NHS. Um, education didn't win. I, I just think they didn't tackle the ancient, ancient institutions like Eton, places probably because, you know, of family connections, probably because these people were already in power. But they should have, they should have just gone that bit further. And I think, I think the time is right to do that now. Let's shut them down. Yes, come on. <laughs> on that note, I'm going to move. Let Catherine move on to your final idea. Um, B, do you want to talk us through your final idea? Oh yes. Yeah. So this is my last and final and just brilliant idea. And it's it's not even my. So mate once said this to me. She said every time I go to someone's house for you know, like you go into people's. Does anyone remember going to people's houses? <laughs> oh no! Right when we come out of pandemic, then you can use this idea instead of taking a bottle of wine to someone's house. Take a book. Give more books. Buy more books and give more books because, you know, you rock up to someone's house with a seven pound bottle of red wine from the garage and that's fine. But a book also costs about seven or eight quid. And it's, it's just a much deeper and better investment and writers will thank you for it, especially if you haven't bought it from Amazon. <laughs> it doesn't even have to be, you know, something very meaningful or important. They can always re-gift it. I just think giving books is a brilliant idea and I, I try to do more of it and we should all try to do more of it just by, if you love a book, buy six. I just, love this idea. To people. Yeah. I think a wine and a book is quite a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do quite like wine as well. <laughs> So when when I was when I when I saw this idea, I wasn't sure if you meant give wine as sorry give books instead of wine always like for any kind of occasion. So I wasn't sure if it counted for Christmas, birthday. Children were going to be baffled by. <laughs> no, it's just that habit of you know we're we're sort of all trained now when we when we show up at someone's house to show up with wine. Yeah, and uh, I think you know show up with a book, especially if it's your book. Yeah, definitely make it my book. Although, and if it's Shona, you have to show up with both wine and a book. Well, do you know, I used to give books, you know, when you have the dreaded birthday parties for kids yeah. and friends. Um, and it was like, oh my God, another birthday party. And I used to give books quite a lot. And they went down really well until a certain age when you see the children just really don't want a book. So, you know, what do you yeah. do in that situation? What book would you give to a disgruntled teenager, for example, if you went round? It could be a graphic novel. I mean, it could be something really. That's the thing. It doesn't have to be worthy or life-changing. Just anything really light-hearted. And, you know, if you go into good bookshops, they'll tell you. It's dead easy. Just say, what, what, what's best for grumpy teenagers? And they'll know. They will know. 
<laughs> I like the idea as well that if you're going to dinner at somebody's house that you don't like, you can buy a book that's a little bit bitchy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so Ooh. you can buy or just a really shit book. Oh, oh, rock up with a Jeffrey Archer. <laughs> They'll slam the bloody door in your face. <laughs> Something like that. All right. There's limits. There's limits to this brilliant idea, but you get the gist. <laughs> I'm making it mean. I know that's not the point. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're not invited, by the way, Catherine. <laughs> get that. I'm just, I've ruined it. <laughs> You know, often feminists take themselves a bit too seriously, so I just wanted to chuck this one in for you. How many feminists does it take to change a light bulb? I don't know. How many feminists does it take to change a light bulb? It takes two feminists, one to change the light bulb and one to write a book about it. (laughs) 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 I love it. Thank you so much for being on our podcast today. It's been such fun. It's always Thank you very much for having me. And I cannot wait to come back to the festival. Please have me back. End of July. We will see you in Stafford. See you all there, everybody. See you in the field. All right, take care. Loads of love till then. Lots of love. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to The World As It Should Be. We hope it inspires you to work towards shaping the world as you think it should be. You can find out more about Primadonna Festival by going to primadonnafestival.com. If you enjoyed the episode, please give us five stars on iTunes and leave us a review. Tell your friends about us. We're on Spotify too and all good platforms. The World As It Should Be from Primadonna. as it should be from Prima Donna.